Welcome to the Happy Mindset, episode 161. Today's episode is called The Week I Ruined My Life. So today I'm joined by Caroline Grace Cassidy. Caroline is an Irish film and television actress. She's a screenwriter and she's an author. And today's episode, we focus primarily on her writing, her life as an author. She's writing her eighth novel, which will be published, I think, around August this year. On today's episode, we talk a little around The Week I Ruined My Life. That was one of, her, one of our most recent books. We talk about writing, talk about how Caroline knew she had a, a draw to be a writer, talk a little bit around her process as a writer, how does she go about writing stories. We talk a little bit around COVID, being a writer in the COVID era, how that has affected her, and uh, how she's seeing opportunities as well out of it. So... That's today's episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. And yeah, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for joining us today, Caroline. It's great to have you here. Um, yeah, so how, how, are you, how are you today? Yeah. Well, hi, Dennis. Well, it's great to chat to you. It's nice to, um, it's nice to meet new people and chat to new people through all this. So um, yeah, I'm good today. It's a, it's a very wet and rainy Sunday here at the foothill of the Dublin Mountains. But apart from that. Yeah. So yeah, how, how are you finding the pandemic at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a very different levels of, of pandemic feelings, you know, I suppose the, the very first one was sort of fine, you know, I embraced it. And I was actually just finishing a novel that I was due to deliver in a couple of months. So that was, it was good. I had loads of time to do it. And, you know, loads of family time. Lockdown two, I was just a bit like, oh, okay. Um, glad I don't have to write something new yet. Because I need interaction with people. I need, you know, to sort of observe people in coffee shops or stand at depart at arrivals in Dublin airport and watch what's going on. So I, that's how I write a lot. Hmm. So that was hard. And then this one, three, I've, I found very hard. I have to say, um, I'm lucky now that I just, I was editing a novel, I suppose. So it was kind of all, pretty much done. So that uh, was actually due to be published in May and we've pushed it back to August because any of my friends that I know that have books out at the moment, they're just, they're not selling. I mean, you know, the same bookshops are open, but it's not the same. Like people, a lot of book trade is done by, you know, you're going to Marks and Spencer's to buy whatever, and you happen to go into Easton's and you happen to see that book. And, you know, so that's how a lot of books are sold. So that's not, um, you know, books aren't really selling at the moment. So it's difficult time, I think, to be a, a sort of commercial fiction writer right now. How do you find it? How do you find that, that change in circumstance and environment? How do you handle that on a, I guess, on a mental and emotional level? How are you finding that? Do you mean within, within work? Yeah, as in adapting to, to realizing this is the situation right now and you don't know exactly when that's going to end either. How do you deal with that as, when, it's, when it's your work that's on the line? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is difficult, you know, and even the book that I had, I'd already started that's out now was set pre-COVID by a month, really, but I managed to sort of keep keep COVID out of the book. But um, I find it very hard to think about what I'm going to write about next. Um, within this world, you know, I, I wrote an article for the Daily Mail yesterday and, you know, I was saying the exact same things in it. You know, you're starting at the beginning of this, you're like, when it ends. And now it's like, when will it end? And is it going to end? And I think all those questions um, are there now, which probably weren't there so much in the beginning. You know, you just kind of felt that it would end I suppose so so a year yeah. later um so yeah I'm not gonna kill myself creatively to sort of 
to find my space, I suppose, within the COVID world of writing a book. So I'm just going to let it sort of linger for a while before I I am due to, to deliver a book in September. But um, I'm just going to let it linger for a little while and see, because the sort of stuff I write is mainly commercial fiction. And I like to be able to put characters in situations and COVID stops you from doing that. Because if you're writing a book that's set in present time, two characters can't meet in a lift and kiss. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> how did you find yourself within that genre? Was that something you were always observing in the world? Or how do you find yourself in this genre of writing? Well, I suppose like I never did, um, I never did a writing course or I never, you know, I didn't study writing in college. I studied broadcasting journalism. Um, but I suppose I was a reader, you know, uh, from the age of four or five, I read, 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 read. I just loved reading and sort of commercial fiction when I was growing up would be, you know, you'd have a Marion Keys book out once a year and you would literally go in, you'd be going in on the time, looking at the shelves to see when the new Marion Keys was out or, you know, Patricia Scanlon, City Girls, you know, they all really inspired me to sort of, and this was not so much inspired me, but they taught me how to write. Like I literally learned the pattern of how to write a novel from reading a novel. You know, that's that's just how how I did it. And I suppose that genre in particular, because I think you have to enjoy writing. I, you know, I, I mean, I know you get to a certain stage and it's a slog, but for the most part, I think you have to love your characters and really want to be with them and put them into situations. And I think writers like Marion Keyes and Patricia Scanlon and, you know, those those kind of writers, Irish writers, really helped me learn how to write, I suppose. So when did you realise you could write a story? That you were capable of doing that? No one's ever asked me that. Um, I suppose... I, you know, there's a funny story I have that I was expecting my first child and I had been an actress. That was what my main job was. But um, even if a role wants a pregnant actress, they will get an actress who's not pregnant and make her wear a prosthetic bump. Right. So there's no roles for pregnant for pregnant women. Um, and I'd always wanted to try to write a novel, but I'd never. A, I was too busy going auditions and, you know, you're learning lines and you're doing this, that and the other. Anyway, I was at home one day, quite heavily pregnant, and there was a competition on TV3. I think it was Write a Bestseller. It was a program called The Morning Show. And uh, anyway, I just said, I'll, I'll try it. You know, I just, I'll give it a whirl. But anyway, my husband was going out to work one day and he's like, well, what are you going to do today or whatever? And I said, I'm going to write a book. And he's like, but like, do you not need like post-its up or, you know, like some kind of, because I'm not a plotter. I'm just, I just write and it just evolves. And uh Kind of just to show them, I think. I just said, uh, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. And I just sat down and I just wrote the first book, When Love Takes Over, in about six weeks. I just make, And I make it all up as I go along. I don't know who the characters are, what's going to happen. I have no plot. Sometimes I have a bit of an ending. A line might come into my head. But um, so I suppose to answer your question, when I finished that book was the first time I thought, oh, I can I can right. do it. I don't know if anyone's going to publish it, but I can I can write it. What does that process look like for you? Are you going from start to finish? And how are you structuring that? Like so your your thoughts are coming into your head, you're writing stuff down, the characters are coming to you. But how do you actually organize that practically? Is there a process behind that? No. It's funny, you know, and I know 
most writers will have a structure, a plot and know where they're going. I will normally sit down and put somebody into a situation. So I will just say, Dennis popped up on screen, sitting behind the microphone, and then I'll just continue to write. And, and the story just comes as, as I write. I, I don't know how or why it happens, but I mean, obviously there's, you know, I would have a big folder of 20,000 words or 30,000 words of books that, that just didn't, they, I had to stop, like it wasn't going anywhere. Mm. But I'm about to publish my eighth novel this summer and that's been my process the whole way through. I just have, I just sit down and start to write and then they just come to me as I go. And are they generally that condensed the time frame, like six weeks will take you to write each book or do they vary the, the length of time you've spent in each book? Depends. It's kind of been one on, one off. One like the first one was kind of easy. The second one can be harder. You know, it sort of mm. depends. But no more than three months really to to sort of get my first draft down. I think that's the sort of the longest I've ever spent. I mean, some come harder. Like I think my third book because I ended up signing a three book deal. And like I wrote one book. I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to write. A, you know, to write another one. Yeah. And the second one was kind of okay, but the third one during on that contract was was a was a slog because it was you know a book a year, you know, and, and I found that difficult. So I did find that that book was called Already Taken and it went quite dark and um, it wasn't really me, but I think I was trying something else just because the sort of the comedy and the lightness wasn't really coming, you know, as it had in the first two. Actually, with the, how, how do you feel there when you're going a bit more darker and experimenting with it? How do you feel that out for yourself? How, how do you start going there to a darker place if you're, if you're used to more comedic and lightness? Mm. I suppose the first one that was dark was, was this third book already taken. And I think I just wanted to try something darker, I suppose, and mm-hmm. um, just give the characters, you know, the, the, this book in particular, she, this, the, the, the lead character was a real loner. You know, she was, um, she was very isolated and, and sort of very unhappy. And, but I didn't enjoy the right. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I kind of had to, had to really pull it. And I think it taught me that it's not my forte, I think, you know, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about the week I ruined my life in a minute. Cause I know you've read that. And, and that started out what I was going to, that, that sort of started out as a marriage that was falling apart, but that got better and had a happily uh, uh, sort of happily ever after. And then as I was writing it, the, the characters, I just, it just wouldn't let me physically. I, it wasn't going the way I wanted to go. And I just got dragged down this, this sort of very dark hole of, of a, a marriage in, in real crisis and, and, and ending with a, a woman walking away from her, from her children, which wasn't where I was going at all. But sometimes I think you just have to, if it feels right, you just have to go with it and sort of see where, where it takes you. Yeah, you're you're following your gut in that, are you? How do you know what way it's going there? Are you following you're following your gut and things, is it? I think you're following your gut. Yeah. I think, you know, in that book in particular, I was gonna send the two, you know, send the two girls off on a holiday and you know there was gonna be all this sort of this sort of fun stuff. And then I ended up, you know, turning it into this almost affair that, you know, was very dark and 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 got and it got quite violent. So I suppose. Yeah, I think I literally did just follow my instinct that now that there's more to this and it's not going to be the happy end ever after. And I suppose when it was my I had just signed a new book deal with an English publishers and I was nervous because they were expecting, you know, the sort of 
easy breezy romantic comedy. Um, so mm. I was kind of off my own beaten track on that. But um, I was lucky that they really liked it. I mean, there was one character in there, Karina, who who was light relief through it all. But uh, yeah, I think I did just follow my gut and 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 see what happened. And I mean, it could have um, completely backfired and people hated it. But um, it turned out people really liked it, and that was good. <laughs> Would that help you with dealing with the unknown? Because you you seem to have started out with a different premise, but then you end up with a different story. Like in general life, like with the pandemic right now, you feel that on some level that helps you deal with uncertainty and in the, on the unknown when you're willing to go a place that you didn't think you were originally going to go to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really freeing, you know, and I think yeah. that's why I, I'm not a plotter because I think my better stuff, my better ideas come when I'm just... I mean, sometimes it's like a piano. I'm, I don't play piano, but I'm sure, you know, that's how you kind of write songs is you just let your fingers go wherever they want to go. So, yeah, I, I do think that um, you have to be free and just, you know, not be rigidly stuck to your storyline. Well, well, me, like if it works for you, brilliant, but, but it doesn't work for me. So I think, you know, if I just stuck to my I kind of idea as I was going in the week of my life, it would have been totally different. And, and I'm glad it wasn't because it was an important book to write. And, you know, the amount of messages I got from, from women in, in really dark places and, and mm. you know, um, awful marriages that said the book really helped them, you know? So, I mean, that's always what you want as a writer, you know? Yeah, I can see that because like the way it ended, it felt like it made it normal that things don't always end in a happy, in a surface level, happy way. And things can happen for a reason that guides you in a direction that might be quite difficult to go in, but it can actually help you to find that path you've wanted to to go on. That's kind of what I got from the ending of it. And that's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, there's so many people do things because you're told that they're the right things to do, you know, and sometimes they're not the right things to do. Yes. They're more morally acceptable. You're pleasing other people, but you know, sometimes I think you do have to take ownership of your own happiness and nobody wants to intentionally hurt, you know, anybody else, but you also don't want to live a life. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the other thing I got from the book, I don't want to be giving away too much, but just my interpretation of the Owen O'Neill character, it felt like she was drawn to him because he embodied the repressed aspects of herself as if she as in she wanted to be more artistic and she wanted to, yeah, she wanted to accept that, I guess, in herself because she lived with a husband who didn't see that, didn't see that as important. Uh, so with that type of character, is that something you intentionally think about beforehand or is it naturally it just kind of happens and in hindsight you kind of see that? this character represents something to this person? Kind of in hindsight, I suppose, if I'm honest, but um, I think I like to, to write characters who are entitled to change, you know, who are entitled to say, you know, okay, I didn't like abstract painting last year, but but I like it this year. And I think yeah. people are pigeonholed a lot of the time. And saying, so, so your point is interesting when you, you look at someone who is living a life that you would like to live you know that it's you're putting you're putting that mirror up and saying god wouldn't that be great so i suppose ali's attraction to own was you know a sort of the freedom the the nomadic lifestyle you know and it started to sort of open something in her head that told her i am desperately unhappy but i don't really but i haven't really acknowledged the fact that i'm really unhappy because i'm just taking along and you know the whole reason i i made her husband so um 
you know, and somebody really likes some, if you really like something and somebody else really doesn't like it, it's kind of okay. Right. But you have to respect the fact that the other person likes that, you know? So I think he was so dismissive of theater and the arts and, you know, there's a lot of people out there think theater is a waste of time and, and, and that's fine, but, but she doesn't. And, you know, so I think what I wanted was for people to read it. And like you're saying, women, I mean, when I say people, um, to, to hold that mirror up and say, you know, are you getting enough sort of respect from your marriage or relationship? You know, the things that you love to do, are they being respected, I suppose? And yeah, um, you're right in saying that Owen was that that sort of mirror held up to her that he was everything, I suppose, that she wanted to be herself while also being everything that her husband wasn't. Yeah, and I think it also represented once, it was quite one one dimensional i think she realized that as in he just represented the aspects that she was drawn to but it wasn't if you look at it she wasn't like he wasn't representing that stability in that marriage he, was, he wasn't representing all the things in her life but she was just fixated on the things that her husband wasn't so yeah. i think she it dawned in her though because she didn't go after him afterwards uh when that marriage yeah. ended exactly you know i think you know what i was trying to say there is nobody's going to fix your problems. No person is going to fix your problems. No man, no woman, no, no, whatever, you know, you have to do that for yourself, you know? So yes, he was the catalyst that, you know, probably, you know, she was wanting to be sort of caught, not that she did have the affair in the end, but I think, you know, he was just that sort of door to sort of push open and, and be able to escape through, I suppose. Yeah, give her give herself permission. Sometimes it is easier to give yourself permission by proxy from somebody else. That is, it's not actually you, but it's leaving it's leading you in the direction you want to go in. But you're not giving yourself the permission to go there. You need that so, other person to, to yeah. give it to. I mean, I think I think uh, Ireland, especially, and 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 marriage in Ireland, it's you know, like if you're in the states, people actually refer to your marriage as your first marriage, your second marriage, your third marriage. And I think here we're so conditioned to try desperately to make marriages work they shouldn't be that hard, you know, it really shouldn't. So I think, hmm. you know, from a lot of the messages that I got from women, you know, reading that book was in God, I would love to get out of this marriage, but I have children, but, you know, so th- there's all this and, you know, I push the boundaries harshly by, you know, Ali actually leaving because most women can't physically do that, you know, and I'm well, by physically, I mean, emotionally, and, you know, they just wouldn't be able to be apart from their children like that that's not to say you still won't be a brilliant mother if you live across the road, you live somewhere else. You know, I think in Ireland, when marriages break up, it's normally the man, rightly or wrongly, and I know lots of cases that it's completely wrongly that have to that have to sort of leave the home. So I was trying to sort of look at that as well and think, you know, there are other ways to be parents without, you know, the typical Irish route of, well, the marriage isn't working, he has to move out, and, you know, there's this, that, and the other, and all the financial complications or the, you know, the kids are in school up the road and you're moving them away and, you know, trying to be the best for everybody, I suppose. And, and the reason why Ali felt it was better to leave was, you know, the kids w- weren't being as uprooted, you know, or, or moved around as much as had she sort of taken them and gone somewhere else. And, and then the reality of her trying to work and do it. And so there was, there's all those kind of things that I just wanted to poke a stick at, I suppose. Yeah. No, no, I liked it. Like um, even giving a six months gap between the last two chapters yeah. for me, that kind of represented that these things take time. They're not. There's no quick fix here. 
because there's a lot of stuff to work through on an emotional and intellectual level. And I think by giving it time, you come to a better resolution. Like it seemed from the book too, that like her and her husband didn't, didn't come to a stage where they couldn't get on with each other anymore. The door was still open for them to become friends in time. Uh, yeah. That was also quite good. They weren't friends straight away, but the door was open potentially with the tease that they were having and stuff. But potentially in a few years time, they might come to friendly terms again. It was a yeah. maturity there that you can break apart. And, yeah, totally. Uh, and I think even, you know, Colin being there, he was a little bit caricatured in a way, but there, he was representing a lot of men in marriages that I, I've seen, you know, that, I, I, that I've witnessed, I suppose. Not a bad man at all. You know, mm. there was you know, at the, you know, the a scene in it where he thinks having an affair and he punches the head off some guy. I, I don't think that's, <laughs> I think that's kind of what you'd expect. You know what I mean? I didn't, I don't think there was, you know, somebody said he was very violent. Well, he wasn't violent. You know, he was just violent on that occasion. And, you know, he was a great provider and, and a great father. But what he was unwilling to do was watch his wife grow and change and accept that, you know, and. And like I say, like, I've never had as many messages from a book uh, from people as I had, uh, you know, uh, of that book. And the amount of them said, you know, oh, counselling, you know, we've tried it and, and you know, we get out of the room and, and, and they just laugh, you know. And that's why near, near the end of the book, they do go for marriage counselling and they do try and they sit there and it's gone. You know, sometimes it is just gone. And I would hope that, like you say, the reader is left with that idea that, you know, they will be friends you know they will be okay and they'll be able to do things with the kids and and whatever else you know that's that was my sort of my hope mm. no that was good yeah it definitely opened oh. doors for different realities different types of paths you can go down and he was even with the counseling that they went there and that's where they realized that there was nothing and it, and they both realized that it was on a feeling level they weren't convincing themselves of anything it was just like it just they realized that it's come to its natural conclusion and there's no right or wrong to this it's just the way things are i guess when you have somebody who isn't willing to grow and the other person who's growing it has to come to some sort of resolution eventually and it's sad of course it's sad but it doesn't mean that you failed at the marriage it just means that <laughs> i just think yeah. it means more that you tried you know you really really tried and you know again i'm saying it's very irish that you know we think we've really failed if a marriage doesn't work and i just don't think that's the truth i think nobody goes into a marriage thinking mm. in ireland thinking oh you know hope this lasts a good 10 years whatever we all go into marriage here thinking oh this is for life you know most of us so you know when they don't work out and when these things happen it's it's tragic you know it's and especially when there's kids involved it's really really tough but what I wanted, you know, the outcome of that book is that it's also okay. You know, it's okay if it doesn't work out. You know, there's the amount of people stuck in really horrible, loveless, soulless marriages because they think the sake of the children, you know, I'll stay. They think, well, financially, you know, I can't take the children out or I, I haven't got the money for that. So what I was trying to say is there's 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 other ways, you know, there, there is other ways to dissolve a marriage and still everybody is kind of okay it doesn't need to be this massive catastrophe and because people change you know and that's that that was kind of my whole idea of Ali Devlin was this young woman and actually I've explained it in um it's been pitched as a tv series at the moment mm. it's 40 but you know we've kind of explained it as 
what would have happened to Connell and Marianne in normal people had they got married and had kids, you know, because it's that 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 the, Ali and Colin fell in love, fell in love in school. And, you know, you do people change and, you know, the lucky marriages are when people do change together and, and you sort of evolve together. But a lot of the time when you when you're married very young and you've kids very young and and women, especially, I think, you know, women in this country, you know, aren't really allowed to change their minds. So, you know, Ali had, you know, can't, you know, want to have kids and be a stay at home mom. And then you do that and your first kid goes off to school and you're like, what do I do now? You know? Yeah. And, you know, see, you have to have that right to say, okay, now I want to go and be a mechanic. Now I want to make clocks. Now I want to do whatever and not feel that you've cheated the person you've married or you've ha- you've hidden something on them or you've lied about who you were in the past. You know, that's not true. You've simply evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something that's that's quite difficult in the culture is just this acknowledgement that we evolve and change as people because it is, they did meet when they were teenagers and teenagers, you don't know who the hell you are. You just know what society tells you or who you should be like. A lot of people, unless you're got maturity at that age, I don't know. But there has to be a level of allowing people to grow. And then when people grow, things change. And then often with change comes a bit of turmoil, like we're seeing right now. There's stuff going on that we'd rather not face, but that's part of the growth. It's the discomfort part of it that you need to go through to get to the, the growth. And I think well, even there's not talking, a lot of room for that. Yeah, but even, even you just pointing that out, and I'll get off marriages now, but can you imagine, like the amount of very hard marriages at the moment, like during these times of couples who are just literally thrown together 24 seven and they've nowhere else to go. And I do think we'll come out of this, <laughs> see a lot of them, um, a lot of broken marriages after this, you know? Yeah. And again, it's because, you know, time spent together and personalities revealed that are kind of maybe not, there's not that time or that, you know, sort of the energies are very different, I suppose, when, when the world was normal. It's also it's also hard to communicate with resentment. I think that was kind of the big thing I saw in the book was that on both sides, they started to resent each other because they didn't really feel like they understood each other. And then they were just kind of at loggerheads. So they never really see each other's point of view and why they were really acting the way they were acting. Uh, I find that quite challenging when you're not acknowledging the resentment and acknowledging the miscommunication. These things kind of, they become more intense than they need to be, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, there's so much resentment in, in that novel. And again, like you say, it's because, you know, I think it's because these two children basically, you know, got married and they decided very early on what their lives were going to be. And then both ended up resenting what the other sort of turned into, I suppose, like Ali, you know, resented Colin's, you know, unwillingness to to sort of to support her, I suppose, in, in what she now wanted to do in her life, you know, to change. And a lot of that was fear. You know, he was fearful that shit, she'll meet someone else. Um, or, you know, why isn't she at home when I'm home? You know, there's, there's a lot of fear factor, I think, in a lot of resentment. You know, there, there can be a lot of fear. Um, but yeah, you know, for sure, I think during COVID and during this lockdown, I think resentment will be <laughs> will really rear its its ugly head in lots of different ways. I mean, you know, even myself, I'm my eldest daughter now has been online school for the last since December or since January, 
And so you're in the house like all day long, whereas in the last, so the middle lockdown, we're all out and she's on my MacBook. But, you know, you're just kind of seeing other people going back to work and everything. You're like, I want to go back to work. You know, I want to do this or I want, you know, so there is, I think we all have a little bit of resentment about what we all perceive that everybody else is doing. I suppose we're all just swimming around in this same fishbowl, really. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the, what's the, the turning the book into an eight part series? What's that process like? Yeah, it's been great. So I've been working with a, um, a film director in England called Virginia Gilbert. So we've adapted it together. So it is a eight part series. Sorry, I think I said six. So it's, it goes from the week, um, the week events, I suppose, up until the, the last um, episode eight will be sort of a wrap up. So, yeah, it's kind of um, it's been really interesting. I mean, I've written a few screenplays, so I kind of know my way around it a bit. But um, that's sort of we sort of pitched it, like I was saying, sort of normal people, but the reverse of it. Um, so, yeah, the only problem with writing a TV episodic now that is only eight parts is nobody wants only eight parts everyone wants you know more and more and more so the streamers you can't even go to the streamers really with an eight part they want you to do more and uh, the thing about Ali was I want to finish her story there you know I think that's the the ending is the ending you know so don't want to oh this is what happened then when she moved into her flat so mm. that's been kind of difficult but um no it's, it's been a really interesting journey and we sort of changed aspects of it uh, we brought the there's more of the children I suppose in in the tv show than there is in the book and the the sort of relationship with mother and daughter especially is is a bit more focused on in in the in the tv series so I guess yeah it gives you an opportunity to expand on explore other aspects that you couldn't you didn't explore in the book is that what the series gives yeah. you as well yeah, totally I mean you know the premise obviously will always remain the same you know it's sort of mm. You know, Kramer versus Kramer did sort of did this in, you know, the 70s where Meryl Streep walked out on Dustin Hoffman and the, and the child, but she came back, you know, so so we're we're very adamant that there's not going to be sort of the the that, uh, you know, that Ali will will go and will stay gone and Colin will be the main provider for the children. But, you know, she will still be a really good mother, you know, so it's trying to get away from that definition of, you know, a great mother is someone who knits and sews and stays home and cooks and 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 does all those kind of things. No, you know, that's not, you know, a great mother is a happy woman, first and foremost. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it. It's vital to be happy in yourself first. Because you can't give what you don't have, and that's that's the, the final component. I think. Exactly. I think what people forget who who want to make this model model motherhood is your children are watching you. Mm. You know, and putting this if it's fake, and you know, you're, you're putting this this fake uh, life out to the children who are watching. You know, I mean, I know most children would just much rather have a happy mother than a mother who is, like I said, baking, cooking, knitting, you know, doing whatever else all day long. But is internally, you know putting on an act you know yeah. you don't want to to children to sort of think oh well I have to do the same because my mother did that all the time you know so I think it's important that as women we say the most important thing for a mother is to be happy yeah I think it's also the uh I suppose just not copying how what you think happiness looks like because one mother could love that they might like baking and being in the household and being a housewife another woman might feel that's hell and they actually rather something else so, so really exactly like, 
questioning point, yes. that for yourself. So right, you know? Dennis. And what we need to do is show different aspects. You know, it's it's the same thing that's been shown. So yes, if you love bacon and do that, brilliant. But there's a mom over there who's out the back gardening all day and she doesn't, but she's, you know, so it's, I just think because we're bombarded with the same image of what mothers look yeah. like or what mothers should look like. And I think that narrative has to change. Yeah, the narrative. Yeah. Actually, back to your own life again, what I'm curious about is the, because you were an actress before you were a writer. Why was that? But, um, well, like I said, I did um, study broadcasting journalism in Ballyfermot, in senior college Ballyfermot. And uh, I don't know, I mean, school, I only really loved English. You know, I wasn't, you know, it was a grand student, I suppose you'd say, you know, it was a bit of a messer. But English, I loved, like when we did Shakespeare, like we did Romeo and Juliet and we did Othello and then we did Silas Marner. And, you know, we just, just these books that I just, that I loved. Um, so I suppose I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I, I just knew that I wanted to do something creative. Um, so the broadcasting journalism thing was, it just sort of gave me options because there was radio, there was print, there was TV, there was all these other things. Um, and probably the very first story I wrote in Ballyfermot, we had to do this travelogue story. But I, for some reason, wrote it in the first person where everyone else would have written it just like, the tree in the hill is lovely. And I said, Sarah, climb the hill and da, da, da. Anyway, so I got top marks and there was a prize for it or whatever. And I remember the teacher saying, God, you should write stories. Like that was a really, really good story. Um, and then the acting thing, we had this little TV set up studio in, in Valley Fermat. And we used to just do these little plays like just for fun or whatever. And I just really liked it. And and that then I did a course, a night course in the Gaiety School of Acting. And they were looking for extras to be in this. It was actually an opera, believe it or not. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, that was in the Gaiety. And being in the theatre backstage for the first time, I was like, wow, I really like this. Like, I just love the vibe. Um, so then I went to Inchcore and studied for three years there. And out of that met this theatre director called Michael Scott, who had taken over the SFX in town. I don't know, it was this old music venue, but he turned it into the theatre and we put on loads of plays there. And uh, then I was asked to audition for Custer's Last Stand Up, uh, which was a children's TV show on BBC and RT. So it was quite, um, you know, it was, it was a big deal. And I got the part and we filmed out in Ardmore. And I don't know, I sort of learned on the job as I went. You know, I wouldn't say I was ever the best, most amazing actress in the world, but I, you know, I wasn't, I was okay. And I enjoyed it, but I found the auditioning process hard. I'm a way better actor on the floor than I am an auditioner. I just, it's the sense of, will they like me that I find, I found yeah. really difficult. And, you know, I'd say I, I ruined more auditions than, than did well in just because, yeah, it was that sense of wanting to please people, I think, that I, that I didn't like. But if you put me on the floor, you put me on a set, I was grand, you know, but it was it was the auditioning process that I didn't like. But anyway, I did like I had a few. I, I got a I did a big Hollywood film up in Belfast with David Gordon Green and James Franco and um, Natalie Portman, Call Your Highness. And. And it was funny, it was, we auditioned in Belfast for this. And on the way up to the audition, there was a bomb on the train line. So we all had to get off the, the train. 
I was so stressed by the time I got to the audition room that I just went, come on, because I, I was going to be late to get the train back. And anyway, I ended up doing the best audition of my life because the, there was no nerves. I didn't care. I was just like, get me out of here, get me home and, and got it. Um, so, yeah, but it was never something I think that I was ever going to want to go to L.A. I was never really, you know, that pushed. I mean, I have so many friends now who are still actors and Jesus, it's a tough gig you know it's a really really it's a tough life and I suppose like I was saying then when I got pregnant then I couldn't really audition so the that's when the the sort of the writing stuck but just to go back to that when I won that um three book deal you know it was with pool bag press and I was like oh my god you know and then you look at the contracts and you look at the money and you're like oh <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I still got to keep I got to keep other money coming in. I think this is the thing people don't realize is that most authors get paid shit. You know, the money's really, really bad. Yeah, I think you have to really you have to really love what you're doing to be an author. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing, like I could never have worked in an office or, you know, I'm not great at people telling me what to do. And so, you know, I thank my lucky stars that I I do this for a living now you know thankfully I've, I get paid better now but that you know I can sit down and all I need is this laptop and I can go and create a piece of art that will live forever you know I think that's uh I I know I'm really lucky to do that because I have so many friends who write and write brilliant books and they can't get published at all so I'm not poo-pooing it but I'm just saying it isn't the your three book deal isn't you're not going out buying your merc you know yeah set realistic expectations i think yeah i suppose when you get in for, into it for the right reasons those things don't deter you anyway you just because you're going to keep going regardless anyway well that's it but i also think if there's anything that all this lockdown has taught us it's you know books film you know how important they've been because when we're stuck in our houses like this that's the only escapism you really do get so you know, I do really feel for a lot of actor friends who haven't been able to work in a year. You know, theatres haven't been open for a year. And, and that's really, really hard on, on those people because that's their jobs. And like you say, it's also their, it's part of them. You know, it's what they need to do as well as what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah, that must be difficult to write when you're, when it's contextually based, like a writer can write anywhere, yeah. but a, an actor needs to act in front of people or be on a set or something. Well, even if you're lucky enough to be a, to be a film actor, you know, TV, that's kind of rolling on. We have a huge community of just theatre actors here. You know, you, you know, every night of the week, you know, we've the Abbey, the Peacock, the Project, the New Theatre, the Gate. You know, these these are full every night with actors who work and, you know, and, and it's just like you've pulled the rug completely from under their feet and there's nothing else that they can do. Oh, put on a play and put it online. Oh, shut up. You know, no, yeah. that's not how it works. You know, you need a live, they feed, they, you know, actors are like bears, you know, they feed off the energy. Yeah. They feed off <laughs> laughter and they feed off audience and it's not the same. I mean, I watched a play in the Abbey online just to support, but you're just like, we're all sick of being online and, you know, that's not escapism, I suppose. The other thing, actually, with do uh, you find your work has helped you with your people pleasing aspect to uh, overcome that in any way? How do you mean? As in, like you're putting work, like I suppose even for how how I ruined my life in a week, um, because you're putting something out there that isn't conventional. I'm guessing you can't be a people pleaser to do that. It goes against your nature to people please to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So, um, yeah, I mean. 
I think like even the, the, the book that I've written now is um, it's a very long title. It's called The Unexpected Love Story of Lexi Byrne, age 39 and a half. And again, it's looking at sort of when women hit 40, this ah, baby panic, settle, grab, man, go. And again, that's ingrained in us, but it's also a physicality that, you know, our body clocks are, are sort of stopping making babies sort of around that age. But, you know, this, this, this sort of settling thing that I, I've seen go on a lot that, you know, you get to this certain age and you just settle. So, you know, when you talk about pe people pleasing or not, so I've kind of rocked the boat in this novel a little bit where, um, She's just like, we're expected to have babies, right? You know, that, that's what women do. That's how the world will, will, will continue to, to grow. But she sort of pushes back against that. And she's like, she, she just isn't sort of ever going to settle for anybody. And, you know, wants to, to find this true love. And does true love exist? Well, you don't know unless you really, 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 really look for it, you know. And how do you look for it? How do you know that? You've got to date a lot of people. You, you know, you've got to... So, you know, I don't know whether this novel will be what people will expect from me, I suppose, but I found it quite, um, I found it very interesting to write a character who is a woman and who isn't panicking because she's 40 and who isn't desperate to procreate and, you know, who's just living her life, kind of like a guy who's 39 and a half lives his life. But um, yeah, so I'm not sure that she's she's as pleasing to, to to my audience as maybe some of my other characters you know because she's very strong actually, actually the uh what came to mind there was about the expecting your audience expecting something do you feel like that could stifle you after a while if you're writing with their expectations in mind and you also think they might get bored of you after a while if you're if they can if they can predict what they're going to read why would they read the book yeah, it's an interesting question because as well, a lot of the time publishers will try and keep pushing you into your into their comfort zone. You know, I suppose what they know will sell. And, you know, a Caroline Grace Cassidy novel is commercial fiction. There'd be a heroine. There'd be a bit of a love story. Um, so I don't worry personally about my audience not liking it. I just think, you know, I don't really like to pigeonhole what I write I just write stories I suppose so not every story is going to please sort of everybody you know there's, a, there's another Irish writer called Kira Garrity and she's sort of the same she started off writing kind of upbeat commercial fiction and she sort of changed it into this sort of darker very wordy prosy kind of books um, and her audience have, have just grown with her you know they've sort of just gone with but that's what she's doing so you know I'd never worry I suppose that they're not going to sell because they, they because the audience don't like it I'll just keep writing what the only way I know how is what comes out basically you know yes yeah. I could sit in and, and totally how you know totally okay I'm going to write this story about this girl on a beach or whatever but it would be I think I'd be it would you'd see through it immediately because the characters wouldn't be there you know they wouldn't be life to them yeah yeah authentic I suppose it also gives you, you a space to grow as a writer yourself when there isn't that fixed genre that it gives you space to grow as a writer. And over time, you'll be open to experimentation. And, and I suppose it's also that things will happen in your life that you mightn't expect. And then that will also put your focusing in a different direction. But if, if you're not open to that, then it won't come true in the writing. 
No, I mean, it's like that, you know, if you're, if you're a Liz Nugent or somebody and, and you write um, these horror books, so, you know, murder books. I mean, that's people know if you buy a Liz Nugent, someone's going to get killed in the book. But I think that's the beauty of my writing is you don't really know what to expect. You know, there's going to be a story told. But because some of, like as I say, this is number eight and probably three of those have been quite different and the new one is quite different. Um, that I think people are willing to just go on the journey and just not really know what to expect. And it's sort of, you can get very pigeonholed uh, as a writer, obviously, because of your publishers, because they know what sells. So sometimes if it isn't marketable, marketable, um, they'll try and push you down and, and down another avenue. But the way I write, like I was saying, is I just sit down and start and the story just comes. So most of the time I can't preempt whether it's going to be a happy or sad ending, do you know? Yeah, well, actually, what comes to mind for me there is that you, you mentioned the start that COVID or the pandemic is difficult for you because you write based on the current day, the context, your observations. But I guess an opportunity is that when do things do kind of resume in some way, society could experience a big shift in how we go about things, which will give you new material and you probably write books that are quite different to what you're doing, yet still stick to the same uh, genre of what you're doing but they can be very different because the, the society has changed quite a lot in a very condensed period of time well totally yeah like i was we were chatting before uh you were taping is that you know when the kids are in school normally i'll get on a bus and i'll just listen to conversations and so they're going to be dramatically changed those kind of i think there'll be a more serious tone in the world you know i think people yeah. there might be a more grateful um people will be more grateful i think and more um I think people are more willing to, to get out now and to sort of do more things and push themselves a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to observe what's going on in cafes and, and, and that kind of stuff and, and see where that takes the writing. So I'll only hope it's sooner rather than later <laughs> that we can get to do that. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I think that's pretty much it today. I covered a lot of, covered a lot of ground there. Um... You know, the thing is, I think for writers, if you're, only starting to write, I think now is a really exciting time to start to write. You know, I think I'm sort of used to how I write, so it's difficult to start. But I think starting now, you have a really new and fresh canvas that no other writers had before in the history of the world. You know what I mean? You're writing about the world now and how people are feeling. And I think, you've, you know, there's a, there's a really exciting opportunity there i think for first-time writers to, to sort of find their to find their voice i think it's it the ship is sailed for me in, in that level because i'm too astute to how i write and to how i watch the world and how i see people but i think if you're only starting out now you have a really um interesting voice for people to to read and see how you see the world now you know so do you have uh, any tips actually for somebody finding their voice as a writer this was everybody, you know, the, I have a lot of writer friends and everybody writes very differently. I, and like I said earlier, I don't plot. And I, do, I would advise any writer who thinks, oh, I think I have a book. Made. I just don't know how to do it, to, to try and do what I do, which is just to sit down and write and, you know, see what comes out. Because I think sometimes writers get really bogged down in beginning, middle, end, you know, did, 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 to have it all down when really you should just trust yourself and just see what happens and where it goes. And 
you know, obviously it's no harm to have some kind of loose plot, but I certainly think it's what holds a lot of writers back is that they don't think they have it all in their head or it's not all set in concrete. They don't trust their creative side of their brain because what happens is as characters evolve, the story evolves naturally, you know, so you can just put your, you know, just have your characters you know just come up with your characters and then literally like i said sit down and, t- and put them in drop them in anywhere put them sitting on a bed reading a book and your brain will naturally tell you oh someone came in the door who's that what happens next and i just think a lot of writers don't trust themselves enough in in that part yeah i feel that it's the trust in yourself in general mm-hmm. because it's quite an intimate in, intimate thing that you're doing and you could also seek feedback from the wrong person i think and then you'd second guess yourself and doubt yourself do you have any advice around that where you, you don't have confidence in, in how you see the world because it is like your perception of the world that you're dealing with here also yeah I mean for me I never let anybody read my stuff until I send it to the publishers I just I think there can be too many voices and like you said I think it's your story you have to trust yourself to write it and obviously you're putting yourself out there you know for whatever you write everyone's going to read and everyone's going to have an opinion or a comment or whatever on it. But I just find it's you're way better off finishing your draft, you know, and then if you want to look for feedback. But when you start sending it around, people say, oh, well, I didn't think this and I didn't think that everybody has a totally different opinion. This is your story. You know, you know how to write it. You know, you're going to write it. So I just think I know loads of people who send it. They have all these friends who read it first and give various feedback and all. I just think it slows the process down, you know. And the other thing, the tip I would give, which is how I always write, is write your first three chapters. Don't think you're writing a book. Think you're writing. Because most most publishers will ask, or if you're looking for an agent, they'll just ask you for the first three chapters. And that's an easy thing to write. You know, I mean, a chapter can be four pages. A chapter can be 14 pages. You know, so there's no definition on how long a chapter should be. But I think if you get your first three chapters down and go over them, go over them. A lot of the time what happens then is you start to see, oh, yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. I can. So I think that's a tool that enough budding authors don't use. They think they have to delve in and write the whole book when I think you really only need to write your first three chapters and then you have a great, like you're, you're up and running. Well, that's a good idea. It's even testing the waters with those three chapters. You could, well, it is, you know, and, I, and they're the most important chapters of any book of the first three chapters. Cause it, pe- readers literally keep going. I put down after the first three chapters, a publisher will only read the first three chapters. I, it doesn't matter if you've got the whole book written most of the time, that's what they'll read. And then it'll go on to somebody else. And it just, it feels way more doable you know, three yeah. chapters, then a hundred thousand words. So that's how I started with everything. And once I get those three chapters down, I'll go over them and over them. And suddenly those three chapters for me, a lot of the time become seven chapters, become eight chapters because I keep adding to them and I keep, so it's like, you know, they're like seeds and then, you know, you're just watering them and watering them and, and it just grows and grows and grows. So that's my biggest tip. I think for any, any budding writer is to write your first three chapters and then, go from there actually when you're writing the book do you feel yourself living in this world when you're writing it yeah totally yeah, yeah. you do yeah I mean you know there's times where I would think geez I wonder how Mia is and I go oh my god you made her up like she's she doesn't exist you lunatic or I'll think about a house that I've sort of created in my head and go I love that house so yeah you, that happens a lot like you, you I mean I suppose now this is eight books so I've written probably eight main female um 
you know, female characters in my books and you would know them personally, you know, down from to what they wear, to what they eat, to, you know, to all the little nuances that a person has. So you you totally live in their world while you're writing it. And I think if and that's what I say to you about some of the books that that are a struggle, they're the ones that, you know, probably <laughs> aren't aren't working out quite as well because you're not as in their world as as you probably need to be. I guess you're not looking forward to going into that world, into that space each time you write, whereas a book that you do like, you actually enjoy going into this world because you don't know what's going to happen. And you're like, I wonder what's going to happen today. And yeah. it's kind yeah. of curiosity. Kind like of I'd be right sometimes going, no, no, she's, you know, so that's kind of exciting to make it up. But I think not all books are going to be easy to write, especially if you're contracted to write that, you know, you have, you literally have to deliver and they're the hard ones. And they're the ones where, you know, you just, oh, you're sitting down and you really are pushing yourself. Whereas, you know, the easy ones, you can't wait or, you know, you'll like how I know if it's going really well is I always email to myself what I've been sort of working on in case, you know, whatever happens to the the manuscript. But you'll find yourself just logging on to your email and your phone and reading it and really enjoying it, you know. And and that's when you kind of know it's going well for you when you when you want to read it back so early on and, you know, I, I edit as I go as well. So I'll like those, I'm saying those chapters, they do become your Bible. They, they grow and they grow and you go back and read them and you nurture them and you change things and you, and that I think just takes the overwhelmingness of a hundred thousand words out of the equation. Yeah. Right. Were, were, were you ever weirded out by the book taking on a life of its own as in it's kind of like in some respects a stream of consciousness coming coming through you where you're writing what's happening were you ever at any stage weirded out by that happening no I suppose not I don't know I think you always step back and just sort of hope that you're writing interesting things you know so I think you can kind of you can dissociate yourself in that way and not like for example when in just say the week of my life when I had written this very violent scene where, you know, Ali's away in this hotel room and her husband comes banging in. But, you know, you're sort of writing, going, oh, ah, do go, good Jesus, you know, but you know, it's, you know, that's the thing, you're very distant. There's space there, you're distant. Yeah, 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 there's there's definitely space there. And, you know, there's times also that you go, oh, I'll take that out because, you know, people are going to read this. And I think that's, that's when you have to draw the line and go, no, this isn't you. You know, you can't, you must give what you want to give, you know, and obviously there's certain scenes you write that you think, I mean, mother's going to read that or, you know, someone else is going to read it. And it stops a lot of writers from, from being from the truth of the character, I suppose. And you try and they're afraid of who's going to read it or what people are going to think about what they've written, you know, but I think you have to write a book and in your head, just think no one's ever going to read this. This is my story. No one's ever going to read it. You know, it'll be in a drawer because if you worry about everybody who's going to read your work, you'll never be truthful. Yeah, I was going to ask you, is there any, do you have any practice around unfiltered writing that you work on to, to get you into that way of writing that you're not filtering yourself like that? No, not really. I suppose I just want the character to be truthful. And I, I kind of think of a reader identifying with the character or enjoying the character and trying to be as truthful as I can be, you know? So, you know, I always think of it, it's like a friend telling you, telling you a secret, 
you know, telling you everything and, and you taking it in. That's the way I kind of feel the reader is, that I'm telling the reader all these secrets. I don't want them to go and tell anybody else, you know, but that that's kind of how you have to perceive it, I suppose. Uh, are, do you find yourself kind of asking your characters questions and then they come out with uh, what they're going to say? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, if you, especially I love to write dialogue and I, I write lots of dialogue rather than just setting scenes. But, you know, a lot of the time in the dialogue I write, they're conversations I've had or I've heard or I've, you know, someone else has told me about. So there's a lot of truth in in the dialogue. And a lot of time I am asking questions and the character, you know, will answer. And I'm like, ah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know that that was what I had in my head as the answer. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. If you question like any questions that characters ask in the novel is coming from your own psyche somewhere. Yeah. As the writer, you know. That's good. Yeah, I think that that's that's it for today, Carolyn. It was a great yeah. conversation. Enjoyed uh enjoy picking your brain about writing. How you oh, listen. Are you so prolific, I guess, in writing so many novels? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Alcoholic, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> whatever way it's working for you now, whatever it is. But, yeah, uh, no, it's it's great. You know, obviously it's um like I say, it's a privilege to be able to to be a published author. So that's um that's always good. Yeah. Is there any, or if people want to find your work, where's the best place to, to find you online? Um, online, I've actually recently given up the Twitter. <laughs> it's been the best thing ever. Oh my yeah. God. I did not realize what a cesspit it was. Um, but I'm on Instagram, which is a nice place to be, um, at Caroline Grace Cassidy. And I'm on Facebook at author Caroline Grace Cassidy. Um, so yeah, so they're all the time. And um, yeah, a lot of people that. actually go off twitter it's one of the platforms i've never really gone on but is it because why do you, is it because it's so condensed the, the format like or what's the... so yeah i mean you know it is good for there's a good writing community on i suppose you know and the sort of the hashtags are sort of interesting but it's it's just such a negative space you know it's mm completely different to Instagram which is you know people are supporting each other and it just seems to be uh, so much hatred on it um anger and shouting and you know everyone's just because you can talk so fast and you know you're yeah. speaking so fast you don't really have to think about what you're saying or the consequences of what you're saying and you just sh- do, do, do. it's just noisy and like you'll go on Twitter to do something and, and next thing you're 20 minutes are gone and your head is just filled with this anxiety and and it's like so I came off it in December and you're just like, what was I doing on it? Like, you know, you don't miss it at all. There's nothing to miss. I just think people are addicted to news, fake news, any news, whatever it is. They're afraid of missing out. And then you realize sort of people, you know, they just post 40 times a day and, you know, mm. your coffee and your, I mean, yeah, we, this is what we do. But I think when you step away from it, you just realize, oh, wow, you just, it's, it completely sucks you in. Yeah, I get, yeah. It's like an addictive pull and even yeah. addiction to outrage as well. And well, that's like what it is. It's just the addictive pull and it's a fear of missing out. It's FOMO basically, yeah. Twitter, you know, you're afraid and, and you know, the whole thing about likes and, you know, we're addicted to these endorphins of people liking what we're saying or how many likes did I get and, like, I mean, I'm a Vic, I'm as much to blame as anyone. You put up an Insta story and you say, how many people looked at my story? You know, it's human nature to want, mm. you know, people to be interested in you. But I think when it takes over your life and you're, you're constantly, you know, 
looking for people wanting people to see what you're doing all the time i just think that that becomes a bit yeah worrying, i suppose you know especially if you're not even on what like i do find as well it's a fine balance because you're putting work out there that you want to help people that resonates and putting work yeah. out there that you're proud of and at some level you do need to look at the feedback to see is anybody actually getting this is there any bit of momentum going to this at all probably doesn't influence the way i'm gonna put my work but at the same time i want to just know i'm on the right path in mm. terms of other people yeah but, what uh, do you do it's instagram because we do illustrations for all the podcasts so i find it a great visual medium for putting up illustrations and mm -hmm. in facebook i just put on my personal facebook page and that's it i mean facebook and instagram i mean you know i do obviously accept that they are important tools to have you know to, yeah. when you're trying to sell books or build your name and but I think there's a certain amount of time that you just need to spend that obviously I, I wasn't able to control that I go on to do one thing and I just go, oh, she said, he said, who said, why did he say that? Oh, she said that. Oh, no. and, and, and half an hour is gone. But as a writer, it's detrimental too, because you need depth to what you're writing rather than the surface level thinking that's going to get in your way for a writer. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Mm. That's difficult. It's a fine line, but you know, yeah. one of those challenges to life yeah yeah no totally yeah it is a fine line and i think you sort of dip your dip in and out and you know let people know you're there and that your book is out or whatever else and then um go make a cup of tea yeah. just don't want news <laughs> and like you're saying just pay attention to how you're feeling how does this actually make you feel like are you feeling more anxious now or what's yeah. what's the actual pull here is yeah. it a, an like addictive pull or what on instagram you're like oh that was lovely and it's kind of nice and, but you yeah. come away from twitter and you're like oh jesus you know, I think because people can hide behind so much on Twitter, they don't seem to do an Instagram. And it's just, um, it's just meanness, I think. And I just think you don't, you just don't need it, you know? No, no, not at all. Well, yeah, that's it, Caroline. Thanks for taking uh, your time out today. It was great, great to chat with you. Great to chat with you too. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So yeah, so until next time, have fun and enjoy the process.